We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He played for one of the great dynasties in league history and was a key member of the singular team called the Best Ever. He also played on one of the most acclaimed and accomplished lines of all time alongside fellow Hall of Famers Guy Lafleur and Jacques Lemaire. Lastly, he was the first left wing to score 60 goals in a season, and to this day, only Luke Robitaille and Alex Ovechkin have matched that feat. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Montreal Canadiens legend, Mr. Steve Shutt. Steve, welcome. Hey, Rich. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you very much for coming on. So, so Steve, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Um you you're born in North York, Ontario, which is which is essentially Toronto, um, or outside Toronto. Tell me a little bit about you know kind of growing up and and you know your early years and how you got started playing hockey. Uh, well, we as you said, I grew up in North York, and so at that time there was we had a lot of acreage out there. So my dad uh, built an outdoor rink for us, and um, so us. Our family, because I had four, uh, three other brothers, um, and all of our the neighbor kids, we used to play uh, play hockey, you know, pretty much all weekend, uh, you know, on the ice. So it was just uh, like a typical, uh, you know, Canadian family growing up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I saw somewhere. I mean, obviously, we're going to get into this in in more detail later, but. Of the, of the many things you were well known for, one of them was like your your quick hands. And uh, I saw a quote where you said, somebody asked you, you know, where'd you develop those hands? And you said, well, when you're on a tight piece of ice with 15 other kids, you know, playing, you know, pickup hockey, you, you realize you got to get your shot off fast. Yeah, well, it's, you know, like you, you really couldn't skate that fast, sir. So if you looked at my, I had a very choppy stride. And that was from that rink as well. But I had very quick hands because, as I say, we've got 15 kids on us, on us, 
you know, it was, it, it seemed like a big rink at that time, but ultimately wasn't. And so it really developed your, uh, my hand speed. That's so funny. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. I, I interviewed a, a former NFL running back, Greg Pruitt, and he was always known for his shifty moves. And I asked him, you know, where did you develop those? And he said, you would play football in the street and you had cars on this side and cars on this side. And you had a lot of kids playing and you had to figure out a way to get through people quickly. So you just developed your moves. It's funny. Yeah. Look at that <laughs> and not get hit by the cars. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so you, uh, so you're growing up in that area. You're playing for the North York Rangers, which is in the, is that the Ontario junior hockey league? Um, it was, no, at that time, it was just starting at that time. And then and then from there, you went to the Toronto Marlies, um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, very famous juniors hockey program in the OHA. And you played for them. Well, you played for them for one playoff, like you kind of got called up for the playoffs your first year. And then you played for them three full seasons after that. Yeah, well... You know, I, I literally played with the Marley's system all the way up from Pee Wee, uh, all the way up to junior. And um, so, uh, which was actually kind of neat because all of the teams used to practice at Maple Leaf Gardens every Saturday. So the Pee Wee team would start, they'd be in, on the ice at 6.30. Uh, the Meyer Adams would be 7.30, the Adams would be 8.30, all the way up. And so we used to go and uh go there I, I used to get my mom up we used to get up early uh when i was in peewee and get on the ice by myself for about half an hour and then we would sit around at because at 10 30 that's when the the uh the leafs and whoever they were playing would have a, like a pre-game skate hmm. oh that's cool so you get to watch them up close real close yeah were you were you a leafs fan growing up um you know, you know, obviously they, they had a good team at the time. Uh, I was more, I was more into watching different players versus mm -hmm. the team. You know, you know, being in, in Toronto at that time, everybody was a league fan. Uh, but, you know, I liked, you know, I, I like watching, you know, Frank Mahovlich. I like uh, watching, you know, Bobby Hull, you know, going down the left side. Uh, and, you know, it's, blast and a slap shot so you know i was looking more at players versus versus you know one team in particular sure sure and and i always like to ask this question were there other sports that you played also or in your case were you hockey all the way um when i was younger uh yeah, yeah, younger. I, you know I, I you know i played baseball but really in in canada at that time uh, you know, the winters were so long and then, you know, the hockey was all organized for you. So it was the easiest thing to get into. Uh, you know, as soon as the summer came around, you know, there was baseball, but it was, it was limited. Okay. Got it. So you're playing in Toronto and team's good. I mean, you guys have a bunch of guys who are going to end up in the, in the NHL, Billy Harris, who plays for the Islanders, um, Steve Vickers, who goes to the Rangers, Dave Talon, uh, Dave Gardner, who played for the Cleveland Barons, uh, where I grew up. Um, and uh, and you were also playing against guys like, you know, Denny Potvin and Marcel Dion and guys like that. Tell me a little bit about those years in the juniors playing with uh, with the Marlies. 
Uh, well, definitely, you know, playing junior hockey in the OHA was a lot tougher than playing the NHL. Like it was, uh, there was, it was a battle every night, you know, and we had some tough guys, you know, Steve Gerbano played with us at that time. Uh, you know, we, you know, there were some tough guys in the whole league. Sure. And, and uh, so you just never knew what was going to happen from one day, one game to the next. And uh, it, it was, uh, it, let's put it this way. You were, you were tested every game and, uh, and you, you know, even the goal scorers, I mean, you had to be goal scorer, but you also had to be tough too. You know, you had to protect yourself. Um, so it was, it was, uh, you know, and a lot of those guys obviously went on to, you know, NHL careers. So, you know, there was some good hockey there at that time. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a good league. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you were putting up, you know, huge numbers. So it, in, it, during those three years, were you getting a pretty good sense that you were going to be drafted? Were specific teams talking to you or when you got drafted in 1972 by Montreal, was that kind of the first you'd really heard from them? Well, at that time, you know, it's not like it is now where they bring you in there and they interview you and all of that. It's now it's they or in my day, they kept it a big secret. So sure. they'd never talk to you and they never. And, and I mean, if they talk to you, that means they were tipping their hand to the other teams who they were going to pick. So it was really cloak and dagger kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I figured I was going to go, the, you know, the top, top four or five anyways. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought I was going to go to Vancouver, which was the, um, which was the uh, third pick. Hmm. And uh, uh, they picked Donnie Lieber, who was a really good player. And I went forth to Montreal. So you get drafted by them and you go to Nova Scotia, the Voyagers. Uh, well, what happened was I stayed up with the team. Okay. Uh, and Coming out of training camp? Yeah, all training camp. And then I believe it was just, just before Christmas, we were going on a West Coast trip. And, uh, you know, it was a 10-day trip. Um, so I guess they figured I wasn't going to play that much. So they sent me down to Halifax for six games, just, you know, just to start playing. And so that's what I did. I went down there, played three games in Halifax, three games on the road. Okay. That's just a fascinating situation where Al McNeil is the coach of the Canadians in 71, leads them to a Stanley Cup. But because of, I guess, some tensions in the locker room, is effectively demoted to become the head coach of Nova Scotia. And that's when they bring Scotty Bowman in from St. Louis. But so granted, you were only in Nova Scotia for a couple of games, but you're playing for Al McNeil, who had already won a Stanley Cup. What was that like? Was that like kind of an odd situation? Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, and Al was a really good coach and, and, and a really good guy, too. And uh, don't worry, he was from Halifax. So he, he kind of kind of like going back there. But then he wound up going back and going out to Calgary and he was out there working with the organization for 20 years. Um, so, you know, pretty good, pretty good hockey mind. So, you know, going, actually, that was one of the benefits of me, um, going down to Halifax for those six games because, uh, you know, uh, you know, Al was a lot less stressful than Scotty 
And, you know, he would actually, you know, talk to me a couple of times and, and just kind of figure out where I, where I was at and, you know, just trying to give me some, some uh, tips. It was a lot, I guess in Halifax, it was a lot lower. The pressure was, was off a little bit uh, compared to in Montreal and the way things were going there. So it was, it was in one sense, it was maybe a mental break for me. But it also gave me a chance to get on the ice and play, you know, 20 minutes a game. Sure. In that first year in Montreal, you know, the, the balance of the season that you were in Montreal, were you pretty much a fourth line winger? Uh, no, press box. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> fourth line or press box. Or, gotcha. then, or then Scotty would put me on the ice or he'd dress me for a game. Then he put me on the power play. Uh <laughs> But that's the way Scotty was, you know. And then in the reality of it was they drafted me because I was a shooter, you know. So to put me on the fourth line didn't make a lot of sense. But to put me on the fourth line and then put me on the power play made a lot of sense because I was a goal scorer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so I'm so curious. So that, you know, those 1970s Montreal Canadiens teams are just, you know, obviously legendary. And you're walking into a locker room that effectively has, by my count, 11 Hall of Famers in it, yourself included. Um, early on, you know, Henri Richard and, you know, the Mahavlich brothers, like, you you know, you mentioned uh, guys like Jacques Perrier, who, you know, defenseman who goes into the hall. What's it like as a, you know, kind of a 20 year old guy walking into that locker room? Well, you know, you also had Kenny Dryden, Serge Savard, Guy Point, uh, <laughs> Jacques Lemaire. Uh, you know, it was... It was, you know, it was when you walked in there. Um, how do I say this now? You couldn't be intimidated. And there was guys that were intimidated. But if you're intimidated, you may as well rock right out that door. You ain't, you ain't going to stay there. Right. Uh, you know, I walked in there and, you know, I could see I could see Frank Mahavlich, who was a hero of mine when I grew up. Uh, he was playing there. Uh, as I say, Serge Savard was there, uh, Jacques Leperrier, Ken Dryden, uh, all of those types of players that, you know, had won Stanley Cups, had gone, had just finished, gone through the uh, 1972 Summit Series with the Russians. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, I had, I had to walk in there and I had to believe in myself. Because if you don't believe in yourself, how's anybody else going to believe in you? So, you know, I was pretty cocky and I walked in there and I said, I'm going to make this team. Well, I said it to myself, didn't say it to anybody else. <laughs> and that's the attitude you had to have. Because if you didn't, uh, if you didn't believe in yourself, nobody else was going to believe in you. Right, right. And any of those, you know, any of the, the real veterans, like the Henri Richard, who's, who's, um, uh, you know, the captain of the team, do any of them, you know, kind of pull you over and give you, you know, kind of any advice or pep talk, or is it, you know, each man for himself? It, it, so how it started was, you know, when you have a training camp, uh, you know, everybody, you know, I was going to be the next star and Lafleur was going to be the next star the year before. And so you have all of these players coming in you have the established players that are looking there and they're looking at us, us guys coming in, but it's like, prove it. 
go prove yourself first before I'll even talk to you. And that's that's basically how it was. It, it's, you had to go out there and prove that you can earn a spot on the team. And then they'll help you. But until right. then, until then uh, just keep doing what you're doing and we'll, we'll, we'll let you know. Right. Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then after you know but then afterwards uh you know once you came you know you were part of the team then you were part of the team and guys were were really good really helped you if you were having a bad time you know people you know guys would talk to talk to you and uh so it was it was it was good so, you know, this is obviously in an era where almost every roster is 100% Canadian, right? They're, the Europeans yeah. haven't come yet. The Americans aren't re really making much of an impact yet. So it's it's completely Canadian. But if you look at the roster, it's almost 50-50, you know, kind of French speaking and English speaking. And I'm curious, you know, kind of what that dynamic's like. Did that cause issues or, I mean, you know, as simplistic as, you know, kind of language barrier issues? Or is that something that, you know, you guys have been dealing with since juniors and just not that big a deal? Um, it was a big deal out of the dressing room because it was very political at that time with the PQ first coming into power and the, and the whole separation, uh, separatist threat. Sure. Um, it, it, it was an issue outside of the dressing room. Uh, inside the dressing room, it was not an issue at all. Uh, you know, our, our team was 50% English, 50% French. Uh, I think that we all knew that it could have been a, you know, it could have, something could have blown right up there. So I think everybody was pretty cautious about how they did things, what they said, and how how they said it around the team. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and I'm curious about the dynamic with um, – Sam Pollock and and Scotty Bowman. First of all, Sam, I, I read a great quote from Sam. He said something like, give me a goal scorer anytime because I can teach that guy to do everything else. But the guy who can't score goals, it's hard to teach them how to score a goal. And so obviously he must have loved having you come along, you know, like just a pure goal scorer. Um, what was the relationship like between him and Scotty as far as like the locker room was concerned? Could you, you know, can you, did you have a sense for it? Um, Scotty was a very, uh, or Sam was a very private individual. I think he came into the dressing room once in all the time that I was there. Uh, that was not his domain. He stayed out of, I think he came down for one stand, we'd won one Stanley Cup and he came in the room. I think that was it. So... Um, he was, he, you know, he left that, that room to Scotty. Uh, but he also had, uh, it wasn't just him and Scotty. I mean, they had, they had Ron Caron who wound up being uh, a general manager of, of St. Louis, uh, Cliff Flesher, who was manager of the flames, uh, and Calgary. Uh, he was there at the time. Uh, you know, he'd had a, a, a cast, of they wound up there there was about four of them wound up being general managers of uh, NHL teams so okay. they would sit there and go through things you know they were without doubt 
you know, the smartest management team in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it started there, you know, with the Montreal Canadiens is uh, just the management that they had, uh, you know, starting with Sam and going all the way through to the people that they hired. And obviously uh, with uh, uh, hiring uh, Scotty as a coach. It must have been fascinating. So, so your your first year, you come in and you do dress fifty, you know, kind of fifty times at least. Um, I and, did. I didn't think so. <laughs> oh, I had you down as fifty-two. Fifty-two games. Fifty. Sorry, fifty. Yeah. 50 ah, okay. Yeah, I had you. 50. I never saw the ice. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I had you eight goals, eight assists, and 16 points, and 50 dresses. Yeah, okay. Uh, maybe, maybe it's wrong, but... Um, no, probably probably right, but, you know, of those 50 games, I was probably maybe getting three or four minutes of ice time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then obviously, the team goes on a, 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 you know, great playoff run and wins the Stanley Cup. Um, and so that's that's your first ring. Now, obviously, you were not, you know, a huge part of that cup run um, in in the postseason. But what was that like? You know, kind of just, you know, here you are, you're whatever six months into being a pro player, and you've got a Stanley Cup ring. What was that experience like? Um, it was uh, it was really um, insightful, I guess, just to watch to see a team go from a regular season to, and, uh, you know, the, the playoffs, um, just the difference, uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, it's, you know, you're just going to go right into the playoffs. Now it doesn't, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, there's a lot more thought. There's a lot more, uh, commitment. There's a lot, there's a lot more everything. It goes into every single game that you play. Um, and if you, if you, if you weren't there to see it, you would you would never know. Right. Uh, so I was fortunate for that for that first year. Uh, you know, I played one shift of one game. Right. Uh, that's how I got. By the way, that's how I got my name on the ring uh, on the cup because I did dress and play one shift. Uh, but being around there, it really taught me what it takes to win. And there's a lot of there's a lot of players who played for 15 years, didn't know how to win. Mm. They didn't know what it took to win. Um, and, and, you know, that was one of the things about being with Montreal at the time, you know, the players that they had is not only how great they were, but how hard they worked. Yeah. You know, I, you know, everybody asked, well, the mystique of the Montreal Canadiens, well, you know what the mystique of the Montreal Canadiens was, right? Is they worked their ass off every day, every single game. And, you know, it's funny. If you do that, all of a sudden you get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the harder, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Well, yeah. you get a lot of guys that work real hard. And that's, that's so your second year, 73-74, all of a sudden you've got a situation where your star goalie, Ken Dryden, who has in just – two full seasons has already won two cups because his first cup he won, he had only played a handful of games during the season. So he was the rookie of the year, the year after he wins his first Stanley cup. 
But now he's got a Vezina, he's got a rookie of the year, two cup rings, and he decides he's going to sit out. I mean, I guess it's a contract, you know, situation. He's going to sit out. Obviously, Pollock is fu- is furious. Um, what's that like in the locker room when, you know, your star goalie decides he's just going to go, you know, study the law? What are you going to do? I mean, you're going to go and sulk and complain? They would say, we just, uh, okay. Next man up, which is Bunny LaRock, who was a pretty good goalie. Yeah. And, and so say, okay, Bunny, this is your turn. And, um, you know, like we had, we had a lot of confidence in our team. And, uh, you know, during the course of, of the year, you're going to get injuries. You're going to get players out. So it didn't really it, 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 it didn't really bother us that much. You know, like, like Kenny was a great goalie. There's no question about it. And we knew that somewhere down the line, we were going to pay, pay the price for not having him. Uh, but what do you, what are you going to do? You just keep working, uh, you keep working hard and, uh, and doing what you can do. Right. And, and th- those two years, that 74 and 75, those are the two years the Flyers win their Stanley Cups. Obviously, every team's got their, you know, kind of own style. They certainly have their own style. What was it like as, you know, you're kind of a young guy, you know, in those games against the Flyers, obviously very physical, um, you know, you know, great combination of great goaltending, scoring, but, you know, also very physical. What was, uh, what was your impression of that team? It was like playing junior hockey all over again. Uh, and actually, uh, who did I play junior hockey game? You know, Bob Kelly, who was there. Now they had a bunch of Western guys like Davey Schultz who played in the West, which I never, I never played against, but it was very similar to junior hockey. And, and here we go. It's going to be a fight every game. And um, so at the end of the second year, you know, I think that the league had had enough and it, the league really was coming to a point right then of, if they won the third cup, then everybody was going to have to load up on fighters. And, and this was going to, this will take the game back 15 years. Uh, so when we got into the finals with them, I think there, and won, I think there was a sigh of relief from everybody in the league, uh, yeah. you know, and, and but it, it was called, it was called a popular win, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was an interesting series because so that's that's the 76 cup and you guys you go 12 and one in that postseason you, you know you blow through but those four games against Philadelphia three of them are one goal games and the clincher is a two goal game so you know on paper it looks like a sweep well on paper it is a sweep but you know a much tougher series than uh than you know the paper would suggest mm-hmm. well they had Bernie Perron who was a really good goalie and the one thing that that Philly had that people didn't give them enough credit for is their defense was pretty good. You know, they had the two Watson brothers, uh, you know, were there and, and they, you know, they had a better defense than people think. And, and you had Bobby Clark's line and, you know, it's, um, you know, so they had some offense going there as well. So they, they had a bet. They had more of a team than everybody thinks. You know, they just couldn't, that they were just a bunch of fighters. But they, you know, they had a, you know, they had some players that could play. You know, yeah. you know, Billy Barber, 
Reg Leach uh, was there. I mean, those, you know, they, they could play. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing that in a year where you guys win the cup and you sweep them in the final, Reg Leach is the playoff MVP. I mean, that yeah. says something about his performance over those two months. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we're talking about Kenny Dryden. There are certain guys that Ken Dryden could not stop. One was Reggie Leach. The other one was Simon Nole. Simon Nole. <laughs> and there was another guy, and I got to remember his name. And this guy was a marginal guy. But we knew that every time we played against him, okay, we're going to give him at least one goal, and he might score two goals. And that was just – Kenny, just – there were certain guys that he just – he just could not stop. Yeah. And Reggie was one of them. Simon uh, Lole was another one. And I got to remember this other guy's name too. Man, he couldn't stop them to save his life. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's, I was interviewing Dennis Potvin and I asked him, you know, kind of a similar question. I said, was there a guy who just, when you saw him in net, you thought, you know, damn it, this is not going to be my night. And he goes, yeah, Denny Heron. He said, of all like the, you know, big name goalies I placed, that was the guy who stuffed me most consistently. Yeah, yeah. And you get that way. Yeah. Now, I was I was a little different with goalies because it would mine would be year to year. Uh, you know, like for example, Tony is Tony Esposito would just stone me one year, and then the next year I'd go and score four goals against them. Right. Uh, so it was never I never had one goalie that really stopped me uh it was more more of a give and take <laughs> <laughs> that's great um well and and in that 76 that 75 76 season i think i've got these stats right on new year's eve you guys play the red army team the soviets and i, I read one account that called it the greatest game ever played now i don't know if that's accurate or not but it's a 3-3 tie between you guys obviously a dynastic team and the Soviet army team, um, you score a goal. First shot, first period. It is a rip. I mean, you basically cross the blue line and let it go and you beat Tradiac. And obviously there's the famous line from the movie Miracle where Herb Brooks tells the team, if you score on Tradiac, keep the puck because it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> when you when you hit that, did you know that that thing was a laser going in? It was a rocket. You know, and as a matter of fact, I... I saw that game, is it this year or even last year I might have seen it. It was on ESPN Classics, and uh, it was still a rocket. <laughs> even to this day, it was still a rocket. And But here's the funny thing, is from then on, after whenever I saw Trechak, he would look at me, then he'd go put his hand up like this, and he'd smile, and then he come over and shake my hand. <laughs> so he, after all those years, he's he still remembers that goal, and he knows exactly where it went too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that just to set up that Soviet uh, game when they first came over to play the NHL teams, they based out of Montreal, so they were based in Montreal for two weeks. So we could see them practice, and they could see us practice. And we knew that that was going to be the game. 
you know, and so we were eyeing each other for, you know, a, a good 10 days uh, before, before that game. And um, so, and we went in and, and this is where Scotty, Scotty had a really, you know, when he had his team meeting, he said, guys, he says, because at that time, the North American style was totally different than European. North American style was up and down, north and south. You know, wingers would stay on the wing, you know, and and that's what it would. But in the European, it was more of a free flow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what Scotty said, he said, look at He says, remember one thing. He says, the guy that starts off that play is going to wind up getting it at the end. So take him out. And so that's what we did uh, in the neutral zone. The one guy would, would start to play, and we would take him right out. And as a result, the Russians could, could never get any offense at all. You know, they only wound up getting 13 shots the whole game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, they, they almost won it in a minute and a half to go and they hit the crossbar. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. We don't play them. We, you know, Trechak had a great game. Uh, we don't play them. Uh, but that was the reason why, because we just blocked out the whole, uh, you know, the middle of the ice, the center of the ice, uh, from them doing those those uh, passes that that they were they were famous for. We just took we just took them right out. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, in the account I read, yeah, I think you guys outshot them like thirty four to thirteen or something like that. Thirty five. Oh, 35, 13. There you go. And I, I think Ken Dryden was even quoted saying, you know, our team played great. They played great. Unfortunately, I had an off night. And, you know, he, he basically, you know, took one for the team on that. Yeah. Well, Kenny, you know, Kenny uh, at times struggled against the Russians. Uh, and, and again, they didn't play like North American players in a sense where they wouldn't, you know, North American guys would just, if there was no play, they just unload the puck. And they'd shoot it at the net, whereas the Europeans would keep it, and they would only make up a, a play if they had a really good chance. So it was a total different mindset than than uh, than the North American game. And you know, Kenny at that at some time struggled against it. Um, you know, there were some of the other goalies actually played better against them. Uh, and it was just the way that they they played. You know, Kenny was more of a stand-up goalie. Yep. Uh, Tony Esposito was more of a you know of of a movement goaltender, so he would play better against those guys. Hmm. And so, yeah, so so you win that cup. Then the next year, and this is the team that some people call the greatest team ever. A lot of people call the greatest team ever. Uh, for starters, to set it up the goal differential was such that you outscored on average the opposition by 2.7 goals a game. I mean, you, you outscored them almost three goals a game. You in an, in an era when you only played 80 games, you won 60. There've only been a few teams who have won 60 games since then. And there's two things to keep in mind. One is it's now 82 game seasons, but also you can now win games in overtime that you couldn't win back then. So you still remain the only team that won 60 games in regulation uh, in, in the history of the game, which is just astounding. Um, 
And in those playoffs, again, you blow through three series, you, you win 12 out of uh, uh, 12 out of 14 games. Um, and that's the season where you get your 60 goals. Um, as that season was going along, are you, you know, kind of thinking to yourself, my God, I'm on track for 60 goals and no winger, no left winger has ever done this. Is that something that, you know, kind of, you had to have been somewhat aware of it. You know, we were all aware that this was going to be a magical year. Uh, everything was going right. Um, and, you know, I just knew like, like things are just going right. You know, like I had some of the stupid goals, stupidest goals ever I scored, you know, like the puck would, somebody would shoot it in around the glass. The goalie would go out to play it, but it hit the staunch and, and come right to me in front of the net with a wide open net, you know, or another time. I remember Greg Millen one day, he shoots the puck around the glass. Okay. And I just took a swipe at it like this and I hit it and I put it right in the net and nobody, they had to do two replays so people could see how the goal went, how the puck went in the net. <laughs> so it was, but it was just one of those, one of those years where, where everything was going right. Um, and, but this is where I'll give Scotty a lot of credit for that year. Because we knew, he knew one thing. There was only one team that could beat us and that was ourselves. And so he made every game or every practice, uh, he would he would make it so it was always interesting. There was always something going on um, just to keep us away from, you know, fighting each other. Right. Uh, because that's that's generally a lot of what blows up teams. Um, and and so he would go in there and. Uh, like for one one day we came in and we uh, oh we we hadn't scored on the we hadn't scored on the power play for a couple of days, a couple of games. So we come in the dressing room, and the old Montreal Forum, our dressing room was not really big, not not like they are now. Um, but we go in there and there's a net. Now. A goal, you know, a net looks pretty normal when it's on the ice. But if it's in your dressing room and it's a small dressing room, I mean, this net, net looked huge. Right. So we're looking at this and we know something's coming. You know, like what's coming, you know. And so we're practicing at 12. Five minutes to 12, Scotty comes walking in. And he just, he just scowls at everybody. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a puck. And he looks again and he says, you mean to tell me that you can't put this in there and just threw the puck in the net and then just walked out? <laughs> and I mean, I mean, when you look at it, it's, yeah, that makes sense. So anyways, the next game we go and score three or four goals and away we go again. But he would always do things just, just to keep everybody off balance. You know, he, he was, he was Phil Jackson before Phil Jackson, you know, he was a much, you know, not only was he a great coach, he was, he was great, 
probably the best bench coach of all time. But he was a much, he was a great uh, psychologist too. He knew, he knew the guys to kick and he knew the guys he had to kiss. Right. Uh, his, all of his job, he just wanted to win and he, he really didn't have much of an ego. Um, he, he was just out there to win. So if, if I have to kiss you to win, I'll do it. If I have to kick you, I'm going to do that too. Right. But we're going to win one way or the other. And right. that, that was Scotty. That's great. What was, what was I your story? Story? Sorry, Scotty, even yep. a better one. So he's in, he's in Pittsburgh. Bob Johnson, you know, they, they won the cup with Bob Johnson and then Bob passed away. Scotty, Scotty's coaching the team. And six weeks before the playoffs start, they're not in the playoffs. So the team has a meeting. And then Mario comes to Scotty and said, Scotty, the players have made a decision. They want you behind the bench during the game, but they don't want to see you during practice. They don't want you running the practice or anything. They, so here's a guy who's won, what, six, seven standing cups, how many games he's won. Now, if he had any kind of an ego, he would have just said, the hell with you guys. I'm doing it my way. This is it. You know what he did? Said, okay. And he got Barry Smith to run all the practices. They won the Stanley Cup. That season, he signs a big deal with Detroit Red Wings. First thing he did, signed Barry Smith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. I never knew that. Yeah. Well, people don't remember stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, so, you know, Scotty changed, though. You know, Scotty changed coaching from, obviously, from the 60s to the 90s. He had to. Uh, yeah. And that was, that's what people don't realize, how much he did change. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you you brought up Phil Jackson, and, and it pops into my head for two reasons. One, both of them adjusted their game over the decades that they coached and obviously had success at every level. Uh, you know, every step of the way because they were able to evolve. Um, and also I had heard you interviewed at some point because you had done some assistant coaching after your career ended. Um, and you were talking about, you, you referenced how Scotty was smart. Scotty would find teams that were loaded with talent and go in and, you know, kind of make them that much better and win. And Phil Jackson. Well, yeah, Scotty was, Scotty was a unique coach in the sense where he could take a good team and win. Right. Most play, most coaches can take a bad team and make it decent, but to take them to the next level, you really need a unique coach. Yeah. And that's and that's what Phil Jackson always did. I mean, I'm not a Bulls or a Lakers fan, but he would, you know, those teams would not be winning and then he would come in and they would win championships and then he would leave and it would stop. And then he'd go, you know, same thing with the Lakers. He went there and they started winning championships. They were always good. He made them champions. Well, and, and you know, one of the things uh, as we're sitting here talking about this is, you know, he's one of the reasons why he scored 60 goals because what he did is everybody, everybody, has a psychological, you know, they have a number in the back of their mind. How many goals can I score? How many assists can I, you know, whatever. Sure. And if you're playing with Scotty, 
he would take that right away from you, you know, because you're so worried about the now. You didn't have time to worry about, well, you know, yeah, this year I want to score 30 goals. Well, you know, he made sure that you were in about this shift, this game, this shift, and don't and don't worry about goals, assists. They're going to come. You do your job, it's going to come. Yeah. Interesting. And it's actually, I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you and Guy, like you and Guy started playing with each other fairly early on, and he had you paired with uh, Peter Mahovlich for a long time, and then Jacques Lemaire, what, what was the, you know, kind of what was the, and you were winning with both, I mean, you won with both, but you were winning with Peter, what was the impetus to, you know, kind of change things up? It, it was, so when we first started with Pete, uh, you know, I, it was, it was my third year, third year, Lafleur's fourth running, and no, yeah, it was. And you know, Pete at that time was the big star. Sure, he just came back from the '72 series. He was the big star. You know, I really hadn't made it yet. Lafleur had scored like 25 goals, but to everybody in Quebec, he was that was a disappointment. Um, so Big Pete was was the the star on the line and so he but he was and he took the job seriously in the sense where okay I'm going to look after you guys and that's what he did um, so we wound up and what it did it took the pressure off of Lafleur I think a little bit because Pete carried the puck um, and then we started to click and we you know we started to have a, a couple of really really good years um, then what happened was, you know, because Pete was a little bit older than us, he started slowing down just a little bit. But ultimately, the reason we made the change was Lafleur at this time had, had already reached his potential of, of being Guy Lafleur. He had to have the puck. He had to carry the puck. Pete's on the other side. Pete had to carry the puck too. So we got, we, we got two puck carriers on the line. Um, and that would, and that's why we made the change. So we brought Lemaire in, and basically what he would say, he says, "I want you guys do all the four checking, and I'll be the man back." Hmm. And and basically that's that's how we played that uh, you know with with Lemaire. Okay. Who, by the way, just hated playing with us. Really? Oh yeah. How come? Too much pressure. Ah, you know, like you know, he, and and Jock had, early in his career, he scored forty five goals one year, and you know he was going to be the next fifty goal scorer. And uh, the year after that, that he start scored thirty five, but you know all the fans they started booing, no. uh, and so he just said, "Now with this, I'm going to play defensive," and then that's what he did. He played on the second line. He played with Ivan Cornoyer. And, you know, the second line's a lot different than the first line. Sure. You know, uh, the first line, you got to score every game or your team's going to lose. Pretty simple. Right. You know, and second line, it's a little, little, little bit easier. And uh, so when he came with us on our line, he, he didn't really want to, he really didn't want to play with us. Um, and, you know, he would get his 35 goals. 
And then all of a sudden, he couldn't find the net. Um, but then once the playoffs started, I mean, you know, he was just a great, great playoff player. You know, one of the best playoff players of all time. But right. he, he was going to score 35 goals, and that was it. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, because on the one hand, he might feel that way. Um, but on the other hand, like, you know, the success was kind of speaking for itself, you know, obviously for the team, but also the line as a whole, regardless of what numbers he was hitting. So he's probably like, all right, victim of my own success, I guess. Right. You know, being on this line and we're producing the way we are. Well, and if, you know, we're, we're going down the line here and, you know, Lafleur is going for scoring championships and everything else. And here's a guy that literally can take a slap shot and hit this finger and he's missing the net by three feet. <laughs> so it caused a little bit of issues with on the line. <laughs> uh, but again, what I, I'll, I'll, as soon as the playoffs started, I mean, he was the, one of the, the best playoff players of all time. Mm, okay. By the way, I'm in Florida right now. He lives, he lives 10 minutes from my house. I play golf on him all the time. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's, that's very cool. And don't worry, we've already had this battle already through between, between me and him. So <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, and we're going to talk about him again in a minute because it's it's always fascinating to me when a guy who plays with somebody now has to play for that person. Like that changes the dynamic. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, I just there's two things I want to talk about real fast about your next couple of cups. Obviously, '78 you guys win. Um, and and 79 you guys win the the 79 series you're playing boston in the in the in in the four cup runs you guys obviously go 12 and 0 in, in your series six of them are sweeps and three more are five game series so you're you're blowing a lot of doors off the one seven game series you have is in the semifinals in 79 you're playing boston and they're, it looks like they're finally going to get the monkey off their back. They're winning 3-1 after two periods. Um, you tie it up, but now they're up 4-3 with a couple minutes to go. And I, I went back and rewatched the last couple minutes. They get called with two and a half minutes to go for too many men on the ice. And it might be the most blatant too many men on the ice I've ever seen. It's not like there were two guys kind of passing each other at the gate. They were like six guys fully on the ice um, in the play. So the ref had to call it. It's not one of those things where you can eat the whistle. But on the power play, LaFleur comes down. You guys are just looking to tie it in the last two minutes. LaFleur comes whipping down the right side, and you are in perfect position in front of the net. Um, if, if I'm looking at the video correctly, LaFleur lets it rip, kind of like the way you let it rip against Trejack. Um, you know, kind of the same spot on the ice it looked like. Um, and you're, you know, kind of right there for it. What was that like, you know, make, having that comeback? And being there for that shot and being in position for the rebound if it didn't go in. Yeah, well, I got a lot to say about that, about everything here, because I actually watched that game, I believe, last year, a game. And first of all, on game, that game there, Boston definitely outplayed us. They should have won that game. Right. They outplayed us. Uh, you know, we're playing in Montreal. They, they definitely outplayed us. Uh, and just on a little sidebar of all of the, you know, series that we played against the Bruins, 
we had the most respect for the Bruins uh, mm-hmm. of all of the teams. I mean, you when you got on the ice with them, I mean, it was going to be a battle. Uh, and you couldn't get your tough guys to to protect you because they're too busy worrying about themselves. But the one thing about the Bruins is they were never dirty. I mean, they were tough, you know, uh, um, but they were, they really, they really weren't dirty. You know, I remember playing uh, uh, Terry O'Reilly. The puck comes around the boards and uh, comes to me and I flip it out and Terry took me out. And as he takes me out, I bring my stick up on him. And he said, Steve, he said, what are you doing? He says, I hit you clean. He says, if you do that again, I'm going to have to do something. So I'm skating up and down the ice. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? He's right. He, he took me out clean. So the, the whistle fell. The whistle went. I skated up to him. And I said, Terry, you're right. He just, you did hit me clean. I said, I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's the respect that we have for, for, for each, each of the teams. Um, so anyways, that's, that's, and the, and the, the, the one with the too many men on the ice, you know, what happened was the, for that whole series, Donnie Marcotte was, was, uh, checking LaFleur. Hmm. So whenever LaFleur would go on, Marcotte would jump on and then Marcotte's line would go on there. Uh, what had happened was our line had gone on. We'd come off, okay, and Cherry had just called another line to go on the ice, and then Scotty did a quick change and threw Lafleur out of the ice. So then as soon as Lafleur, Marcotte saw Lafleur on the ice, he jumped, and as soon as and I think it was I think he was playing with uh, uh, Rick, Rick Middleton, he jumped on. So they, they literally had you know, two, two lines on the ice. Ugh. Referee Myers, my, he had, he had to call it. He, you could see him. He says, I mean, you got, you got eight guys on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just but, so but that's really what happened. It wasn't, you know, it was just a real quick change. Uh, and it just happened in a split second. Yeah. And then you've got the power play, which, which, you know, you and Guy and I guess, uh, was it Serge and Robinson were on? Well, it was actually, it was LaMare went down and he dropped, he got over the blue line and he dropped it back to LaMare, uh, to LaFleur, who was, who just came in and just drilled that low shot. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting there in front and all I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, if he shoots it on the far side, there's no way I can get the puck. So that's gone. So I'm going to position so he goes on the near side or the center of the ice so then I can get a rebound. So that's what I was playing for. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, and then, and then, then he just nails it. And, and he puts it in. Yeah. And Gilles Gilbert just like flops on his back. He's just like. Yeah. Just- but it was a perfect shot. Yeah. You know, it was a low, low, far, far side shot. Uh, and it, it was a good shot. You know, like there was nothing that, that – Gilly could could do on that. Yeah. And then in overtime, Tremblay comes down, works the puck down, and then gives the perfect feed to Yvonne Lambert. What was that feeling like when, when he knocked it in? You know, it's why it, it, 
once we start getting into the third and the fourth cups, instead of celebrating, it was more of a relief than mm-hmm. anything. And, you know, we've gone through, the, you know, that that was probably the toughest battle that we had was against the Bruins there. And so it was more of a relief than anything. And then, you know, obviously the next series we played was against the Rangers. We, we lose the first one like 4-1 or something like that because we were, you know, we were so out of it. And then we win the next four in a row. Right. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, it was after every Stanley Cup, it was like a piano wire. It would just tighten and tighten and tighten a little bit more. So by the time we got to that fourth one, it was, uh, you know, that well, that's when everybody, everybody retired. Uh, you know, they'd had enough. Yeah. And well, and that's that's the next thing I wanted to get to. Yeah. So Conway A retires, Dryden retires, still a young man at that point. Um Lamar. Lamar goes off to Switzerland. And Scotty had, you know, Pollock had resigned as GM that year, but instead of making Scotty the coach and the GM, they bring in Irv Grunman comes in and Scotty's obviously miffed. Could could you guys sense that 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 he was upset that he had been passed over as GM? Well, he- Here's the problem. And and so you've got new ownership. The Bronfins have just bought the team off, off the Molsons. Hmm. Okay. So they go, Sam left. So now they're looking for a GM. So the first thing they do is to say, okay, Scotty. Scotty's the first one they interview. So what's he want to do? He wants to break up the team. So the Rothmans said, well, wait a minute. We're not, you imagine if we go and buy the team right now, and then the first thing we do is break it up. Right. You know, and now Scotty was probably right in the sense where we're, we had guys who were starting to get a little older and they had to start, we, we, we had to start moving, moving players in and out. But if you're a new owner like the Rothmans, I mean, you can't, Imagine they would get vilified by the, by the, the public. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it was a tough situation, and that's why, and that's when Scotty left. Yeah. So yeah. So all of a sudden, you, your goalie's gone, your captain is gone. You know, your center is gone. The coach is gone. I mean, it's you know, and you've just won your fourth. You've you've just won your fourth straight. They bring in and a legend. Guys are all getting older too. Right. Yeah. Everybody's getting older. Yeah. And I, and I was kind of looking at the drafts. Obviously, when you're winning all those cups, you're drafting at the bottom of the, you know, at the bottom of the first round. And all of a sudden, the drafts aren't quite as good as they've been. So it's getting harder and harder. You're not refilling, you know, you're not replenishing with the same, you know, big names that you were yeah. six years ago. Um, and so they bring in a legend, Bernie Boom Boom Jeffron, to to be the coach. Um, but he has, I guess, some health issues. He only lasts like a couple of months. And then they bring in Claude Ruel. Um, but you know, like we talked about, it's this big transition year and ultimately you guys lose, you know, kind of surprisingly in the second round to the North stars. Um, what was that first year with, after all that turnover, what was that like in the locker room? Uh, it was tough. You know, everybody knew that, that there was going to be, there was going to be some moves, you know, Mm -hmm. there was going to be, you know, the the team was never going to be the same. Uh, you know, we went seven games with the North Stars, who actually had a really, really good team. 
And, and, you know, we had a lot of, at that time in the playoffs, uh, we'd had LaFleur was hurt, was out. Uh, and, uh, uh, Pierre LaRouche was out, you know, so we had a lot of our, you know, a lot of the, the offensive guys were out. And, um, so it, 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 you know, it was, it was for us, it was, uh, you know, kind of tough in the sense where not only all these guys retired, but you still had a whole bunch of guys that got hurt too. Yeah. Um, so, but we knew that, that, that there was, there was going to be big changes uh, from then on. Uh, and then from there, I think we wound up with Bob Barry as a coach comes in the next year. Okay. And, uh, and the problem with, with Bob was, you know, the thing with Scotty, is we were practicing um, 45 minutes a day. That's all we practiced. But we would practice at a very high level, okay? And, it, you know, and you play like you practice. I mean, if you're going to practice at a high level, you're going to play at a high level. You know, Bob was more into teaching and the running drills, and he, we, would, we would sit there and have hour-and-a-half drills, practices. Mm -hmm. So, lo and behold, the next year, we were running out of gas. We were losing games in the third period. Well, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, but you could see, you know, it, it was a downward slide from there. Right. And in and, and one of those years, I think it was 81, in the first round of the playoffs, you play Edmonton which had, you know, just the WHA had just been merged into the NHL and you guys lose three, nothing to Edmonton. It's the first time a, a, one of the WHA teams has, has come in and, and won a series and Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky, who's like 18 at the time gets five assists in game one. Um, now obviously you'd probably seen him during the regular season, but what were your first impressions of this guy coming in? I mean, obviously you'd had a ton of hype, but that's pretty impressive. Five assists. Yeah. But we knew he was good, but also, you know, the Oilers had a pretty good team, you know, yeah. and Mark, Mark Messier there, uh, you know, I, I mean, like they, they had, they had good defense, they had good goaltending, you know, it wasn't just, it doesn't, wasn't just Wayne and Yari, uh, right. you know, they had a pretty good solid team all the way through. And, um, and at that time, you know, we, we could we could kind of feel that we were on the downslide. We've been on the downslide that whole year, but nobody, there was nobody around to fix it. Mm. Okay, we were playing the same subpar games all year long, and we weren't getting any better. We were probably getting a little worse, but you know we weren't doing anything to fix it. So we ran into a team like Edmonton that was on the rise and, uh, you know, it's a short series and uh, that was it. That's all it took. Yeah. And a year or two later in the playoffs, you lose to Buffalo and Scotty. What was that like? Was there, I mean, obviously you had played him many times in the regular season between him leaving and that series, but, you know, was there any kind of special emotion in that series? Uh, not really. It, it's, you know, like it, it's funny because they had their French connection line, so all the guys in Quebec. Uh, but it was a small little rink, 
And Scotty, you know, Scotty devised the plan for those guys to uh, to beat our forecheck. And so he, they kept reversing the puck. And, you know, we'd send two guys in there, and all he would do is reverse it over there. And then that's how they get out of the zone. And we never – we never could come up with a counter to that. And, uh, but again, you know, Buffalo at that time had a pretty good team. Uh, yeah. You know, wherever Scotty went, believe me, there was always good players. You know, whether he went to Buffalo or he went to Pittsburgh afterwards or he went to Detroit, there yeah. were always good teams. Yeah, yeah. Even as an executive in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so then, so Barry is let go in the middle of the 83-84 season, which is your last full year in Montreal. And they bring in Jacques Lemaire, who we've talked about, who was your, you know, your centerman for, you know, years. Um, now he's your head coach after having gone away to Switzerland for a couple of years. What, what's it like playing for a guy who you used to, you know, sit next to in the locker room? Um, I... It was tough in the sense of of the how 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 he wanted to play, okay. and this was the first. Uh, you know, if you know that you know he had great success in New Jersey by playing the track. Well, this is what he wanted to play in in Montreal was the track, right? And uh, you know, I mean, myself and Lafleur are going to play the trap. I don't think so. You know, <laughs> and you know the trap was pretty. As I told him one year, I said, "Yeah, I said you won, you won the Stanley Cup, but I said, but you just about ruined the games." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was, and, and it wasn't entirely his fault too, because he came in. Uh, you know, he's got older guys. You know, myself, Lafleur, Larry. Um, you know, where are the guys that are going out? You know, who are the young guys coming in? And how are we going to play? So we are really in a transition period. Um, so, you know, kind of looking at it, 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 you know, like like at the time, I was not real happy about it. Uh, sure. But looking back on it now, it, 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 it made a lot of sense. But here, uh, so when he came in there, then, then uh, I started, we got in the playoffs, and then I would, Play a game and sit out again. Play a game, sit out again. Play a game, sit out again. Uh, but I was our leading scorer. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so now we go play games the Nordiques, and that's when we have the the same Valentine's massacre. Yeah. And uh, so you know the big fight, and and then everybody you know goes in the dressing rooms. We come out for that. Was it the second period? I can't remember. Second came period. Third. Came, third out period. came out for the third period. We're skating around, warming up, and then all of the the announcer comes out. Well, this guy's out of the game, that guy's out of the game, this guy's out of the game. Well, they're all skating around. So they said, now with it, they start fighting again. Right. So another brawl started again. So then once it's all done, we get about six guys left on the bench. So, so does Quebec. And I'm sitting there, and I wasn't playing. I, I, I was sitting at the end of the bench the whole game. 
So I can see Lemaire, and he's up there, and he's looking down, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I smile, and I says, "You gotta play me now. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta play me." <laughs> well, and I went in, scored two goals, we tied the game, and then we win the game, and, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we go and play the Islanders the next game, next series, and did the same thing. I'd be in and out of the dress, in and out of the, in and out of the lineup. So. Yeah. Meanwhile, you score seven goals in that postseason, which is just amazing. Yeah. And sat on the bench. <laughs> yeah. And that that Quebec game, I, I did have I did want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Yeah, first of all, talk about a referee totally mismanaging a game. So the huge fight happens at the end of the second period. They're up one-nothing. And you if you win this game at home, you 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 clinch the series. A huge fight breaks out. The referee, for some bizarre reason, opts not to assign penalties right then and there. So yeah, everybody goes back to the locker room. No, what he did, no, what he did is there was still a minute or so left on the clock. So he just said, no, the period's over. Go to your benches. Uh, okay. Go to the dressing rooms. So he sent both teams to, to the dressing rooms. There was still a minute to go, they, but they just scrapped the minute. Okay. okay. Now we go back out. That's when they announced. Now, I think it's the, it might have been the announcer should have announced it during the intermission. Right. But he didn't announce it until everybody was back on the ice. So I would think it's more of an, an announcer than it was was the referees. Because they, uh, they'd already given what, here, here's what the penalties were. Okay, yeah. Because, yeah, I, re I read about it. And some of the guys were like, well, if, you're, if I'm kicked out, I'm taking people with me anyway. So let's oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's you know you got you know Chris Nyland's there. You get, I mean, Dale Hunter, it's the two Hunter brothers. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's one of the funny things. So, the fourteen different fights are happening at the exact same time to include Dale and Mark Hunter fighting each other, the two brothers. And you know, I, yeah, the stupidest part of the whole thing. Okay, they had a better team than us. If they would have just played. If they just would have played the game, right? They would have beat us. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they had the three Stassi brothers. They had Michelle Goulet. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had Danny Bouchard and Nat. I mean, like, like their team, their team was a lot better than ours. All they had to do was go and play. Yeah. But Michelle Bergeron, who just loved having tough teams. Well, I guess he wanted a real tough team, but he didn't really want to win that bad. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, but if they would have just played the game, they would have won. Yeah, that's they're amazing. They better team those. And and the thing that's the two things stood out to me on the stat line. One is Dale Hunter did something that I I, I think would be impossible to ever replicate. With at the fifteen twenty mark, he takes a rough of the second period. He takes a two minute penalty for roughing. Goes in, comes out at seventeen twenty, goes back in for roughing at seventeen thirty nine comes out at 1939 and then gets in that fight. So in four minutes, he took on three separate penalties fully served. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like mathematically, it's almost impossible to do. And you're right. It just takes it totally out of the game. Yeah. And, yeah. And then you score two quick ones in the uh, third and then you guys blow their doors off. Yeah. And it was, it was, and, I mean, and in that game, I mean, you've got, uh, we had uh, Jean Hamel, who played with the Nordics the year before. Mm -hmm. And Johnny, 
you know, Johnny was a defenseman. You know, he's a third-line defenseman. You know, not dirty in the slightest. Okay, you know, but he'd take you out. Sure. Um, and Louis Slager was his roommate with the Nordiques the year before. Well, he's the one that sucker punched him and started the whole thing. And ultimately, John lost his eye and had to retire because of that. Because oh, wow. his ex-roommate sucker punched him. Wow. I didn't realize that. Um, and then and then the next year, a couple of games in, it's obviously like the team has been you know, kind of on a slide somewhat. Um, you and – well, you're traded to Los Angeles – and he announces after like, you know, kind of 15 or 20 games that he's going to retire. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that, like, you know, the end in Montreal. And then also, you know, what was it like moving to L.A. and, and you know, playing with like Marcel Dion and Bernie Nichols and guys like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, so, you know, you could see after. As they say, after we beat the Nordiques, you know, I'm leading the team in scoring. We go against the Islanders, and then I'm still in and out of the lineup. So, like, the writing is on the wall here. So, I, you know, I go into training camp. And anyways, I go up to see Serge. And I said, Serge, you know, like, what do you want to do here? I says, and he says, well, he says, you got three chances. He says, you can be here, be in and out of the lineup. You can go down and be assistant coach in Sherbrooke with Pat Burns, who Pat was the coach at that time, or else we can, we can trade you. And I said, well, I've already been talking with Mike Murphy, who was my captain with the Marlies and who was the assistant captain, uh, the assistant coach with Los Angeles. And he says, they would, they, they'd like to have me. So he said, okay. And uh, virtually I got traded there. And uh, I got basically, I got, and a year later I came back and, you know, I got traded for myself basically. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, it was almost like a, it, it didn't feel like a trade. It felt like, like almost like a loan, like what British soccer teams do. Like they loan a player and bring them back and there's a fee involved or. Yeah, well, they did, you know, even Rogie, Rogie, Rogie Vashon didn't even know what the trade was. So. <laughs> At the end of the year, I said, Rogie, I'd like to come back for one more year. And he said, well, if you come back for one more year, then we have to pay your final year. I said, no, no, you don't. I said, the deal I had was I come out here as long as I want. And then when I'm finished, I go back to Montreal and they finish paying the rest of my contract. Hmm. He says, that's a pretty good deal. I said, here, I'm telling the general manager what the deal is. Uh, so it was kind of a strange thing. So anyways, they wound up not picking me up. I go back to Montreal, and they paid the last two years of my contract for me to sit at home. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And so the, the thing for me, it looked like, like I could get out. He couldn't. You know, they couldn't make a trade for me, uh, not Quebec. So... You know, and again, he was, you know, the the, the thing with with LaFleur was LaFleur needed, he needed room. He could not be structured. 
Okay. You had to let him play. You know, he was a hundred percent instinct, instinct player. If you started putting, you know, like, like here, you have to do this and you have to do that. Well, he was finished and you could just see him, uh, you know, as soon as Jacques came in, he's trying to try to get him to play a system and there's no way there's no way. And so that was, that was, that was it. So he retired. I retired, and then um, basically we went and played uh, old-timers hockey for three years all over the place, and that's when he came back. Yeah, he came back with both the Rangers and uh, Quebec, right? Quebec, yeah. But he, we'd gone on the tour. We, we toured Western Canada for probably two years, maybe two years. Maybe three. I don't know. Uh, and we were playing, you know, we go with 12 guys, go in there. And we were playing some pretty good teams. You know, we were in pretty good shape at that time. Sure. And uh, you could see when when Geek started, you know, he'd lost all his confidence. But by the end, you could see he was back to being himself again. Yeah. And so then when he told me he was going to come back, I said, Geek, do it. Do it for yourself. I said, you're ready to come back. I said, you're mentally ready to come back. Go and do it. And that's when he came, that's when he came back. Interesting. And he, came, and he retired on his own accord, which was, nice. that, that was more important to him than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't realize all those details. That's, that's really interesting. Um, well, uh, and, and I have to ask, you, I'm sure you've, you know, kind of heard these quotes and these, uh, uh, like, you know, kind of testimonials, but uh, I'm curious, like, you know, I've, I've read that, you know, Don Cherry said that, you know, you were the, the shooter that Jerry Cheevers feared the most, your slap shot. Um, and I know that Billy Smith of the Islanders, you know, said something very similar that, you know, you had the wicked slap shot that was actually accurate, um, which was not always the case with guys with wicked slap shots. Um did you, you know, would you have conversation like in, you know, kind of in retirement, you know, do you have these conversations with goalies when you bump into them, uh, you know, about your shot? Well, no, not, not anymore now. Uh, <laughs> but actually Billy Smith, we're talking about the old timers team. He played with, he played on our team for about five or six years. So yeah. I got to know Smitty, I got to know Smitty really well. And I got a lot of respect for him because he's pretty competitive and he was competitive when he played with the Islanders but he was even competitive when he played with the old timers team too. And uh, it, I respected him for that. But, um, you know, the, in those eras that we did, you know, the goaltenders equipment was not really that good. And um, so I knew I was going to get three to four shots a game. So if I'm going down the ice, and if I don't have a real good shot, you know, like a chance to score, I mean, that first shot is going high and it's going hard. Because <laughs> after that, they'll give you the shots on the bottom. <laughs> so I'm just setting them up for the second shots. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, a lot of guys used to do that. Uh, you know, the first shot would go high. And then that second shot, you know, you get them on the tippy toes. You know, and then you slide it, slide it right along the ice. But now, now with the equipment the guy's got now, can't do that. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, it's it's amazing when you see the pictures of the old goalies. You know, even Dryden, you know, even you know, even some of the bigger guys, you can see the net behind them. <laughs> now you can't see the net. Well, and, and again, you know, the goalies are bigger, yes, but the equipment is bigger. And mm-hmm. I would, if I mean, if I was the lead, I would go back and say, okay, we're going to have a five-year plan to shrink the goalie's equipment. Uh, because to me, one of the most exciting plays in hockey was, you know, Bobby Hull, Frank Mahabwood skating down the left wing, taking a slap shot and just picking that last, picking the corner. Yeah. You know, that was an exciting play. Yeah. Uh, now what's, what's you're replacing that with a scramble in front of the net that bounce off three different guys or maybe one of the cross pass one timer shots, you know, that Ovechkin does right now. Uh, uh, But it's still not as exciting as the guy skating down the ice and taking that shot. (laughs) Well, even, even just the two goals that we were talking about earlier years against Trey Jack and, and uh, LaFleur's to tie up the Boston game. I mean, those are, those are plays you don't see in today's NHL. No, that's because the goalie's equipment is too too big. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Who 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 were the defensemen um, that you know you just that either you know you just thought, oh god, you know here we go again. I got to go up against this guy for the next sixty minutes. You know who were the guys who really stood out? Uh, there was there were a lot of tough guys that you know they they you know they they let you they let you know they're around. Uh, but I don't think there was anybody, you know, and, and, and again, what, so me and LaFleur were not stupid. We, uh, as soon as we played against the Russians and we saw that they're flowing game, we said, why don't we do that? Because now what we're doing is we're getting, we're going back in our zone. We're getting a, a two defensive guys that are checking us. Well, they're, they're staying up here waiting for us. So why not we do a crossover, let those guys stand there. Now we're coming with the puck with speed and they're standing still. So how are you going to check us? Right. You know? And so we just did it with speed. And so this is, this is one of the reasons of, of, of the success that we had. Um, so we just kept, you know, we just kept speed you know, on not only not only the forwards, but 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 the other defense as well. Sure. Uh, um, you know, the 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 guys that I used to worry the most would be like Bobby Orr and Brad Park, because those guys were offensive players, and I knew that if I was on the ice, and if those guys ever scored, I mean, Scotty would be all over me. So, you know, if you ask if, if you ever ask Brad Park who the toughest guy to play against, he would say me. And he said, because the reason why he says shot, every time we go in the offensive zone, shot would come over, stand beside me, and put a stick between my legs. And he <laughs> says, what can I do? <laughs> That's awesome. Self-preservation. So I, would, I would say, I got my man. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. 
Well, I, I have to say, Steve Shutt, it's awesome to spend this time with you. I, I could ask you these questions about, you know, these obviously iconic Canadians teams and and your iconic career uh, for another hour. But um, but I've taken a lot of your time. So I really appreciate you coming on Chasing Hardware and talking about these great years with the Canadians and, and your own Hall of Fame career. Thanks, Rich. It was good to reminisce <laughs> on some of these uh, some of these old memories. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks again, Steve. All right, Rich. Take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Life is like what it is Life is like